Hey there, just want to cut in and remind you that this show and other shows like it are supported by listeners uh, and their donations. Go over to patreon.com slash duckfeedtv and consider kicking in a couple of bucks a month. Makes a huge difference for us. Um, also, this chapter of the book has some uncomfortable sexual stuff in it. Just a warning, if that's going to make your day worse, uh, you know, take that into consideration. Otherwise, uh, we have a lot of fun talking about... Uh, you know, the non-squeamish stuff. Anyway, I'm going to stop hemming and hawing. Let's get to it. Welcome to Radio Free Midworld, a podcast about the Dark Tower series of books by Stephen King. My name is Cole Ross, and today I'm joined by Autumn Greer. Delighted as always. And by Jeremy Greer. I'm only here because Autumn made me be here <laughs> why is that because <laughs> is that because you don't like this part of the book or yeah she uh she said there was way too much vagina talk so she had to have her man here to, to help her through the vagina talk i'm just kidding this is totally a lie i'm so glad that autumn is here for all of this vagina talk we're gonna have to go through each chapter <laughs> I, I i i actually have been referring to this section of the book as stephen king's vagina monologues <laughs> yeah it's uh it is it is real um I, I feel weird saying this. It, it is it is real effective use of sexual imagery as horror, <laughs> <laughs> or at least uh, as as a generator for discomfort. But who knows if that is my hang up or not? No, I think that you know a lot of this is would be disconcerting for just about anybody in Susan's shoes. <laughs> yeah, or 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 lack thereof in, in the case of the first part. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So if you haven't gathered, uh Stephen King didn't do something uh called the vagina mon- mon- monologue. We're talking about the beginning of uh, a section of the book Wizard and Glass. Um uh, it's kind of the first half of the part of the book called Susan. Uh, last time you'll remember uh, the story was kind of in present present tense. We had uh, the characters getting out of Blaine, the crazy train, uh, wandering through a weird version of uh, Topeka, Kansas, uh, that also had been afflicted by the Captain Tripp's plague. Uh, it's it's complicated, uh, and and also um, kind of walking through a thinny, this weird erosion between worlds. And this thinny has affected Roland in such a way that he knows he has to tell them the story of his youth and his first adventure. And so now we're in the flashback. What um, just before we before we begin, um, you know, because we're on a new book and this is both of your first episode on here talking about this. Uh, what is your kind of experience with Wizard and Glass? How did you first come to it? Um, and what are kind of your your overall your overall thoughts on on this portion of Roland's story, uh, Autumn? Um, I believe that I this was the first book that I had read when it actually came out, uh, as opposed to the other ones. Um, I got to read all three in a row, marathon right through them, and this was the first one that I had to wait a little bit for. Hmm. You know, when you rank them in order, I wouldn't say that it's my top book. I think I was pretty clear that that's The Wastelands. Mm-hmm. Um, but with with this one, I, it's, it's fun to really piece together Roland's background. It's fun to see 
Roland um, being a little bit younger, getting a little bit more of the mythos of Roland's world. Uh, it is a little bit of a, I mean, you start off with such a headlong race, you know, you're talking with Blaine and then all of a sudden, poof, we're in the past and we're, we're going to take our time. But I'm really excited to talk about it with you guys today. Yeah, it's a real, uh, it's a real upset in the pace. Um, Jeremy, same question. Um, this is the first book that I ever remember pre-ordering. It may even be the first thing that I ever pre-ordered. Uh, like up until this point, uh, like Autumn mentioned, I'd, I'd read the three books, and it's such a huge cliffhanger at the end of book three, and <laughs> the excitement around book four, like actually finally coming out. Uh, I was working at a video game store in the mall. There was a little crappy bookstore right down the way, but they assured me I could have like this fancy hardback copy if I reserved it. I paid it all up front with my very meager earnings from the from the game shop. <laughs> and like the day it came out, like I showed up on the gate, like knocking on their gate to open the door because I was so excited to get it. It was a I'm sure you guys have both seen this. I know Autumn has. Um like this beautiful hardcover book with these beautiful paintings on the inside every few chapters. Uh and it was just a just a delight to behold. Like it was so amazing. And uh I have to say I was very excited to get into it. This was pretty. This was kind of pre-internet for me. Like internet was around, but like I wasn't. We didn't have like the media. Like not everything was just immediately spoiled on the internet. So right, uh, right. like I had no real inkling that this was going to be a prequel. So the Blaine stuff finishes up, and I was I'm all in. And then it felt like it just crashed as soon as we started going back. And I'm like, this is an old west. What? <laughs> no, this is not what I want at all. I don't like any of this. And of course I did. Like it was, it was, it was still Roland. It was still Roland, and you know, finding out his history was insanely interesting to me. But um, it, there was a, a moment of initial shock. And now when I go back and reread this, uh, it's it, it's especially it's, it's hard for me to read this book straight through. It's it, it's a really good read, but just by the fact that it's a flashback for throughout most of the book, it's it's like okay, I already know this. Like it's not progressing my story, and I feel like I already have all of the de- these details in my head. But once I finally get into it, and I, that's what happened in this last read, once I finally kind of got into it for a couple of chapters, I was like, okay, now, okay, this is just a very nice Western story that's full of intrigue with these interesting characters, and I'm, I'm going to get into it. So, Yeah, I, I, you're, both of your kind of impressions of this kind of mirror mine as well. There was a definite like sense of, oh, the dragster deployed its parachute right when you hit here. And, you know, um, and there's also, you know, like that's the impression that I hear a lot of people say, like, oh, book four is this weird little it's this weird exception, this bisection point. Um, I I like this a lot. I think it is a fantastic Western story. um, And I really enjoy it as part of like world building, because even though, you know, (laughs) even when Roland is a child, for all intents and purposes, people are still saying, ah, yes, the world is moving on. Like, we are getting a chance to see what Roland's world was like before it did. Just a tremendous amount of world building happens, even in the first couple of dense chapters of this, of the of this um, mm-hmm. flashback section, right? And so, like, yeah. I'm always going to be hungry for those kind of details. Um, and it just so happens that, like, the conspiracy is awesome and the characters are great. Yeah, so it's... Uh... Yeah, yeah they're, the, the Coffin Hunters especially are, are some of my favorite Stephen King villains. Um, just by the nature that they don't do anything particularly terrible. <laughs> like, they're not they're not like super racist or like weirdly aggressive, aggressively sex, sexually. Like, it's there's some of that, but um, it, they're just... They're just straight up like rough riders. Like, they're just straight up hard, du- hard dudes in, in, the, in the Old West. And, you know, I, they're... 
Jonas specifically, of course, is is just kind of terrifying. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh man, Jonas. His uh, so Frank Muller's depiction of Jonas in the uh, the audiobook is great. Just the uh, the 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 weird ghostly voice that he kind of gives. And when I say ghostly, I'll be like, "Ooh, Rollins, I know your name is Rollins." And it's not like that, but uh, he really plays up the kind of like quavering understatedness of it. It's uh again a, a terrifying character all its own uh, and this would be the last of the dark tower books that frank muller uh, narrated unfortunately anyway uh, oh good oh no i was just i was just that, that sucks i know a lot of people were really attached to his uh reading of all of all of these novels yeah well on that sad note why don't we get into it because we have a lot of ground to cover because again this is uh rich rich with incidents you know like and it kind of starts in media res or you know with characters that we haven't seen before so it doesn't make a lot of sense to do uh, previously on here uh, instead we are introduced to one of the many villains in this book uh and i think one of the most singularly unpleasant characters that king has written and consider how many times we've said this so either we've barely amended before <laughs> or i especially mean it now uh, let's talk about Rhea of the Coos, um, who is a witch. Yeah, like a like a typically horrible, dirty, gross fairy tale witch that's constantly thinking about her vagina. Is <laughs> Rhea of the Coos? Yeah. Uh, like you said, how did you say you said Rhea, right? Did not because me and Autumn were questioning our, our pronunciation of that uh because since we're both book readers and we haven't listened to the audiobook but it is Rhea in the audiobooks yeah yeah um Rhea I think is uh is the one and I say that like uh like Rhea like Rhea Perlman mm -hmm. you know from from from, from, from Cheers um yeah yeah I, I, I say Rhea I okay. can't I can't remember how Frank Muller says it but that that seems to make sense to me what I love about this chapter though is he really just goes for it I mean <laughs> We we start off with the title of it, which is Beneath the Kissing Moon. And I mean, literally, we get one paragraph in and she's talking about masturbating. She's like, you know, oh, wow, just for a lady that lives alone with one cat, it could be a long night, but I've got busy hands. I mean, <laughs> yeah, Lisa, so you could you could call this chapter instead of Beneath the Kissing Moon, the the reawakening of Rhea's vagina. <laughs> because she she's she's a she's a crone right she lives in this basically this hut you know she has a snake uh and her pet six-legged cat musty um and she's brought a gift a magical artifact that um has a particular vibe a particular energy that i mean it it, it makes it makes her wet like it, it 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 induces this kind of sense of youthful arousal in her and it kind of brings um you know <laughs> uh, no matter what this says about how we treat the sexuality of aging women i don't i don't i don't know um it kind of brings an unsettling aspect to this artifact's overall effect and this artifact is no good like it's not it is not good news for anybody who gets involved with it one of the things that really <laughs> that really struck me about this uh, when we're first seeing Rhea open up that Ironwood box, and maybe this is just because I was on the episode where we talked about Eyes of the Dragon, but Flag's magic crystal, 
was actually in an ironwood box in a leather bag. Uh, I, w- I went back and checked it for the actual quote. So I thought that was, um, I think the, the line is, the rock was as milky as an old man's blind eye. It looked like a piece of soapstone, but was in fact a crystal, flag's magic crystal. Mm. So uh, I, I guess that's just what we're going to keep the, the bends of the rainbow in, huh? Just ironwood boxes. I think so. Um, and ironwood plays a huge role in uh, in uh, the wind through the keyhole, right? Um, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I guess ironwood has an insulating property. Also, there's a, uh, there's a mark on the top that says in an old tongue, uh, I see who opens me or something like that. Very paranoia inducing. Uh, Jeremy, you were going to say something? Just that the, um, not only does this like, does this object like contribute to her overall like it, it makes her actually look young in various points of the story too which i find kind of interesting like it's it, it kind of smooths away some of her lines as she's looking into it um and there's a point a little bit later uh that someone else sees her opening this and sees that she looks almost beautiful but still uh, extremely cruel mm-hmm. and it, it just makes me think that this woman has left has led a just a, a horrible life from the get-go it's not like she was a nice person up until she moved into the outer baronies and started becoming a witch. <laughs> but she, she has always been just an extraordinarily terrible person. Yeah. She's like this weird kind of combination of like soothsayer and medicine woman. She lives at the very outskirts of town. Everybody kind of fears her. Um, and she performs all of these different functions. Like later on, we, you know, we hear that she sells headache powder to cure the hangovers of all the, uh, of all the town, like the town officials. Um, and specifically what she's, you know, serving, serving here and tonight, uh, is, uh, well, we'll, we'll, we'll get there, but she kind of performs these rituals and checks and kind of feeds the superstitious side. And she's like legitimately magical. There's a little bit of doubt in the characters, uh, as to, you know, the nature of her power, but she can set fire with her very word. You know, she has uh, some form of the touch, right? She has a form of the shine. Um, so again, she's no good. I, I lo- I'm glad that you mentioned that about the uh, about the light making her look young again because she is, you know, the crone, right? Um, what she has is this um, pink crystal ball that has this kind of hold on her. She can sense the glamour even from inside the uh, the, the the ironwood box with its silk insulation. Um, and it's kind of a ball of far seeing. It can show her things that are happening elsewhere. Um, the way that it makes her look younger is it casts this, you know, pink light that kind of fills in the crags in her face. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, it just kind of like causes this trick of perspective and shadow. It is not just a, a, a glamour that is done. It's like a, uh, it is a category of the light that reaches out of it. I'm glad that you mentioned her as a crone. I think that's one thing that really stuck out for me about this whole section of the book that we're covering is, you know, things are moving on in Roland's world. They talk about how diseased it's getting. Um, but this really is taking those iconic maiden mother crone. Um, you know, Rhea is a straight up witch. Um, she's a wise woman that's also evil. We've got the mother figure in terms of Susan's aunt who's barren and um also a horrible person and even the maiden here susan her virginity is being sold to the highest bidder like every aspect of this i guess the three faces of woman are being i I guess corrupted here you know 
Yeah, or if not corrupted, at least, uh, uh, let's say, profoundly compromised, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So the reason she has this uh, is because these three men, the big coffin hunters, have brought it to her for safekeeping. You know, they know that she is this mystical woman, has a place where she can hide it. Um, you know, where nobody can find it. And no, it is not in her dry creek bed, as she <laughs> describes it. No, she has a, a magical little compartment under her bed that she kind of like, you, you know, draws a little draws a little symbol to open up and things like that. But, you know, it is here for safekeeping. We don't know for who, for whom or from whom yet, um, but uh, it it is here. Uh, part of the agreement was that she wouldn't crack that thing open and use that bad boy, but nope. You don't tell Rhea what to do. <laughs> don't try. I, I I don't know why you're trying to tell Rhea what to do. She, she's kept her own counsel for many a year, as she says to, to Susan a little bit later. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've lived alone for a long time. I've developed some tendencies. <laughs> yeah. You know, she talks about living alone, but I got to tell you that six-legged cat seems like a really good buddy. I mean, he's he's tripping people. He just hangs out. I mean, it's kind of like, um, I guess, like Gargamel's cat or the cat in King's Quest Three. You, you know, just really wow. helping out. Good pull. <laughs> really, really helping out the evil magic person. Yeah, she. It's it's oh. a, it's a familiar. Don't and don't forget about this uh, horrible snake too, because uh, the fact that she just like hangs out with the snake and drinks its poison every once in a while for like kicks is really funny to me. Oh, it's like, that's 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 just the kind of crone she is. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, she she like specifically you know says, oh, two drops enough to kill an entire dinner party if you mix it into the punch bowl. No, she just drinks it to get drunk. She and she squeezes <laughs> it right from the source. She milks that snake. <laughs> so that she can make herself milk in this. She, I, I don't. Is is that an awkward phrase? She milks the snake. Um, no, no, not at all. Not yeah. at all. I mean, but this is a Stephen King novel. Either, either we're going to talk about this stuff, or we're going to going to speed around. So. No, no, but like that's what she does to to intoxicate herself. You know, before mm-hmm. she be, before she looks into this. So the six legged cat musty. You know, it, it it is her familiar. It is her it is her little buddy. Um, and in fact, like later on this in this episode, we're going to find out that she sends it into town to like do spying for her. Um, it's six legged. The the two extra legs just kind of like stick straight out of the side. Um, you know, one out of each side. So it's like ah, I had extra points to use in the spore creature creator. So here we go. Um, <laughs> in my favorite detail, like the, the king is so great with the imagery and 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 this section in particular, where it says like, oh, as it ran across the room, it cast a shadow that looked like some horrible spider. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the- the cat also has the same color eyes as Rhea, which I find pretty fascinating. Like that seems just the most creepiest part of everything. Like they're so like what kind of weird shit has she been doing with this cat to make it have the same color eyes as her or vice versa? Who knows who's in control here? Yeah. Oh, so you're saying it's a puppet master situation. Like Rhea's not oh, Rhea. Like she's an unnamed woman who the cat hijacked and is using as her mm-hmm. uh, as, 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 as her familiar. Oh, this is a good adventure hook. Um, so after she takes a shot of her snake venom and peers into the uh peers into the orb herself she gets a vision a portentous one she sees three young men riding into town uh and experiences you know a little bit of like the ability to control what the orb sees 
but mostly is frustrated by not being able to see under their hats as they ride in, you know, like gunslingers. They're they're gunslingers. One of them is. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But she, she is shaken from her reverie by the sound of a young woman approaching, singing a song, singing a song called Careless Love. And Rhea, well, she doesn't like to be caught off guard. No, she doesn't. She's she's pretty upset about this. While we're talking about careless love, um, does anybody else sing this into the, in the to the tune of "My Endless Love" by um that Canadian woman whose name I forget now? No, I don't know the song that you're talking about. You're gonna have to sing me. Yeah, yeah, some... I'm definitely not gonna do that. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I could. I thought I could trap you. <laughs> uh, never mind then. Go on. We'll we'll yeah. talk about. <laughs> how mad she is at susan for interrupting her little yeah. uh her her pink ball party as far as i can tell this isn't an actual song although one of the uh one of the verses later on like reads very very similarly to yesterday by the beatles and, okay and cool. I, d- I don't have the actual <laughs> verse ready to pull up but that's the, that that's always what i kind of kind of associate it with again okay. also because of the hey jude connection you know yeah, uh, Stephen King has never met a Beatles song lyric that he wasn't willing to put into a book somewhere. So, <laughs> yep, it is. Uh, he's trying to launder the copyright. <laughs> it it really just sets up the whole book to that careless love thing, and then Rhea's quote right there, where I'll give you careless love, you virgin bitch. I mean, it's it's exactly what happens in the book. Yeah, um, I mean. Well, I, I don't know if that's a spoiler. I mean, obviously, Roland isn't rolling around town like Mickey and Mallory with Susan um, anymore, you know, like hanging out with Eddie and Susanna. But... Right, right. I mean, and also we, we, we learn in book one, I think, that he lost somebody dear to him named Susan. But I mean, I okay. think anybody who's a little bit genre savvy would be able to suss it out, right? Like, oh, these two teenagers are in love. Everything will be good forever. Yeah, is that not is that not what always happens? <laughs> yep. Ever <laughs> e- ever since uh, uh, Shakespeare uh, wrote Romeo and Juliet in the best spring break ever. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you if you just stop where where you know, like right before they go to the tomb, everything's fine, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's probably like an alternate history version where like a time traveler comes in and says, "No, don't." Then they just kind of like <laughs> fuck off and go to Romania or something and live their live out the rest of their days. Oh man, they sound like uh, Shakespeare's version of Doctor Who now. What what, what are we doing? I don't, <laughs> are, we, are we writing a new sci-fi? I'm into I this. I don't know. Maybe I I was thinking more of like a uh, like a Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies kind of thing where you just take an existing work and then make a minor alteration to make it uh, to make it yours, quote unquote yours. Um, let's talk about Susan. Uh, while we're talking about the young love, um, because she is here for a particular right in this chapter called Proving Honesty, uh, specifically um, for two things uh, where Rhea is going to determine, A, if she has any kind of demonic infestation, um, and also to determine if she is still intact, to see if her virginity has been taken to see if her hymen is broken. There's no sense in being squeamish about it. This is a regular tried and true just test of virtue uh, with a little bit of Dark Tower mysticism put on top of it. I I think it's probably still even in modern times. I mean, I know most of my friends were initiated into the mysteries of the flesh by a weird woman not wearing (laughs) shoes in a hut. (laughs) 
Autumn, can we please just go one day without you talking about the weird woman that didn't wear shoes in that hut that hung out near your school? That's so weird. You bring it up all the time. You know, you know, he 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 talks like that, but you know, he asked for that piece of paper that said "honest" when we got married. O n n e s t. That spells honest. Yeah, m o o n. That spells honest. <laughs> yeah, and this is this continues the discomfort because not only do we have, you know, the 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 crone talking about her once dry creek bed flooding, we have like a straight up very uncomfortable sexual situation bordering into sexual assault of this older woman, you know, um on this innocent young girl, you know, somebody who's essentially like what some somewhere between like 14 and 17 or something like that. It's yeah. and she's in a terrible situation because not only has her has her dad Pat Delgado, the person who tended the mare's horses, uh, died by being trampled under his own horse in kind of mysterious circumstances. We're going to find out. Uh, her her aunt basically, as Autumn said very succinctly earlier earlier, sold her to the highest bidder, who happened to be the mayor himself. Yeah, this is a bad situation to be in where um, this 60-something-year-old man is creeping on this 15, 16-year-old girl and uh, has basically just made a deal of like, hey, I'll you know, I'll forgive your family's debt in some weird feudal situation and also give you the horses that you've been raising your entire life back to you. And uh, all you have to do is bear my child. And um, over the course of this chapter, Susan's going to realize it's not just like, oh, I have to have a, co- I have to have a kid. It's no, I have to let this dude like, all, all up in me for as long as he wants to because he has bought me. Right. And uh, that's prop- that's a terrible situation for any 16-year-old to be in. That's pretty gross. Yep. What's even worse is he. she has to hang out with his sad wife, too. Yeah, like, like, just, like right yeah. there. <laughs> and, we, and we find out that uh, uh, Cor- Coral Thorin, I think, is her name. I Sorry, I didn't make a note of it. And the, some of the names kind of run together. Cor- Coral Thorin, it's very uh, rhymey. Um, she's actually the like rural the, the rural juror. She, she's not that bad. <laughs> like, she, she, she's a very sympathetic character. Like, you know, she just happens to be married to the mayor who can do whatever the fuck he wants. Um and, you know, this ancient right of like, well, if you don't have a son, you can get a ghillie. You can get a younger woman to bear a son for you so the line can continue on. Um, as far as Everything's I know. Everything's coming up, Mayor Thorin. Yeah. You this Larry David looking motherfucker. Um, <laughs> That's exactly, exactly my mental picture. Like, as soon as I saw Larry David for the first time and reread this book, I was like, yep, that's the dude. It's exactly that. <laughs> Described as being bald, having the shock of white hair around him and being, being real thin. Like he's, he's described as being like a, um, like a, uh, like a bird, like a really skinny, just scrawny dude who laughs at inappropriate things. And also, Susan is fixated on his knuckles. The fact that he has these gigantic hairy knuckles that he cracks all the time. Oh, jeez. And it, it's it's really interesting that Susan kind of has the measure of this guy. Um, I mean, it's it's not surprising because she's been around him all of his life. But the fact that she just so coldly and cleanly like lays out his entire steed. It's like he's he's the brash. You know, he laughs at dumb, stupid physical comedy and not any kind of puzzles or anything. And He's always if he says something, he looks over at his um, 
is it Chancellor? Is that the title for? Y- yeah, that- Chan- yeah, Chancellor. Chancellor. Uh, as Chancellor to make sure he hasn't said anything wrong, and so he's very much a stooge in, in all of this. And and Susan just even at sixteen has that figured out from from the get go. Yeah. Yeah, and he's using this. Well, I need a son loophole in order to basically get a get a side piece. Which is the I need a son loophole. I love that. <laughs> That's true, right? Yeah, the I need a son defense. It'll hold up in any Gilead court of law. Yep. Oh, a gil a, a gilly for Gilead. I'm sure that was a that was, that was a novel that was written. It was it was a bodice ripper at the time. Although it's yeah. it's, sure, it's, it's it's mid world, so it'd be a body wadi ripper. Uh, Fabio still somehow on the cover. How does yeah. that even happen? <laughs> that guy gets around. He was going through the uh, is going through the doors at uh, Cancano, right? Sure. Yeah, or no, Castle Discordia. Sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the doorknob was filigreed with with just flowing blonde hair. <laughs> uh, so that's a little bit of the why. Some of the how is pretty important. We should probably talk about Susan herself because it's easy to cast her as kind of just this victim in all of this. And she very much is, you know, um, let's let's say parties to some very bad circumstances. But she's, you know, she's a character in her own and is, you know, can, can kick some ass when she wants to. Right. She's got a great sense of humor. Like there's a lot of times when she kind of rolls her eyes inwardly at Roland, there's a lot of times where she thinks things kind of under her breath to about Rhea, like, oh, yeah, I, I bet. You, you know, I mean, she's she's spunky. Yeah, well, she's not afraid to tell Rhea, like, you unnatural thing, I'm going to push you into the fire. <laughs> or my favorite, like one of the first times you get an, you get an inkling of just kind of what she's what she's made of when when Rhea sends her out to pick up some firewood. And the cat kind of tr- like attempts to trip her. The cat hisses at her, and then she, without thinking, hisses back, scaring it into running away. I'm like, "All right, Susan, we're gonna get along just fine." <laughs> <laughs> not, not, not that I'm all about terrorizing some cats, but eh, the cat asked for it, right? <laughs> he really shouldn't have had those extra legs. That's no. all I have to say about it. No. <sighs> yeah, I like I like that Susan has uh, because. You know, we're we're pretty well into the Dark Tower series, and we've, as as Roland has been training Eddie and Susanna and and Jake, uh, Stephen King has taken care to talk about like a certain amount of steel in all of these people, yeah. and uh, Suzanne, Su- Susan, I said Suzanne for some reason, <laughs> Susan shows that uh, shows a lot of that during this meeting with this crazy, scary old witch that she's very intimidated by, but not intimidated enough to show fear or to back down or to you know avert her gaze or anything like that and plays the whole thing very smart like susan you can just tell it, it, it like she has a kind of a glimmer of that of that gunslinger gunslinger um makeup that yeah. we, we've been reading about for you know three books now yeah um and that's something we're gonna see like you know in in, in a lot of the characters is spotting you know kind of that aspect of a person of a character that we've seen before there are echoes all over the place right mm-hmm. yeah um so <laughs> Rhea sends susan out um after insulting her father which you really ought not do um and Rhea's like oh well she's going to be away for a while let me just take a look into my precious here real quick uh and susan spies through this is very important she sees Rhea not looking into the orb but opening a box and seeing this pink glow flood out Let's put a pin in that. Like she knows that Rhea has something that is 
even more explicitly magical than Rhea is. <laughs> um, and Susan goes to great lengths to hide this fact. When she goes back in, the rite of proving honesty begins in earnest. Uh, and King doesn't spare a lot of detail about what Rhea does um, and kind of how closely she examines Susan. I don't know how much we want to go into it, but there's definitely a, very, a lot of like, oh, I'm going to I'm going to pay a special attention to the to the place above your above your shins where the sinew comes, like explaining, oh, if the demon comes, he will leave a mark. We do not want the demon um, uh, tainting whatever sun you might uh, you, you, you might bear. And then it moves on to explicitly sexual stuff, inc including her, her her anus and her vagina. Um, you know, for what Rhea considers to be the only things that that Mayor Thorin really cares about. And you know, <laughs> go ahead. I, I just love the way that Rhea later, because after she, I mean, I, I, I guess kind of sexually assaults her a bit. Um, I mean, she she knows that Susan can't really go anywhere. And she's like, OK, I'll I'll diddle her a little, little bit. But she, I love how, what she says. She's like, whoa, listen, I'm just having a crazy night. OK, <laughs> like she doesn't say that she got the ball. Like she tries to make this excuse like, hey, you're really young and pretty. I'm having a wild night. OK, like, <laughs> I have had like, three wine coolers, and you walk your hot naked ass up in here. What am I supposed to do with myself? Okay, he, he, yeah. he, he gives her the Edward Norton at the end, Edward Norton at the end of Fight Club. You 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 found me at a very interesting time in my life. Like, yeah, hey hey girl, you're the one who walked in here with your second best dress on, even though you only had two. Jeez, it's not like we're making light of what I mean. We 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 kind of are, and I I apologize if that's a thing, but it's it's such an absurd kind of situation because Rhea's had this reawakening by the by the orb which is uh god i'm saying this while i'm looking up at my orb um you know the orb Whoa. that i keep on my mantle i've got an orb it's fine um <laughs> and, and, uh, he says casually i've got an orb people have seen my orb we've talked at length about my orb <laughs> this is a very orb heavy <laughs> book um i guess not more orb heavy than five five is pretty orb heavy um Basically, this the, this series takes a strong right turn toward the orb uh, beyond this point. Um, but um, oh gosh, where's my the, the orb? Dis the orb distracted me. What was I saying? Yeah. Throw a cloth over it, Cole. It's taken over your mind. Oh no, I'm wasting away. I'm I'm obviously not. Um, but uh, let's see here. No, she's had this reawakening by the you know by by the grapefruit by this by the by this crystal ball that she has. Um, and, you know, beyond just proving that Susan is honest, that, you know, that her hymen is intact, she kind of gives her like a pro tip. Like, you know, she gives a little bit of a strategy guide saying like, hey, you know what? Feeling good doesn't require penetration and then decides, you know, you see this right here and kind of sh shows her how to stimulate her clitoris while also doing so to to her causing susan to kind of like step back feeling soiled and saying nope not this no that nope yeah this this whole scene like we're we're we're, we're laughing and joking about it and i think that's pretty much only it's because it's all we can do when you're covering something like this right like it's right. it's because it, it's it's, so it's really skeezy. yeah absolutely and it's it's definitely meant to i don't know if not necessarily just to, to scare but to disgust like here's this 
as Autumn talked about, this virginal 16-year-old person going against the, like, metaphorical and almost literal crone. And you're, you don't want these – you don't want this crone to even touch this this idea of perfection and beauty and youth and innocence. And I, I guess that's what it's for, but – Man, it does it does come off like because he he goes into some detail as far as the exploration goes and it's like the positions that she the, that Rhea puts Susan in and things like that and like Susan being extremely embarrassed about the whole thing like it's 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 God, man it's it's <laughs> reading through this like I don't know how I was reading this when I was like seventeen or eighteen and going like yeah this is perfectly normal this is <laughs> this is this is just a normal fantasy western novel I'm into this <laughs> this is this is fine no. <laughs> There's there's something very, I guess, odd, too, about, I, I, I don't know, she's looking for the devil's mark on Susan while she literally has an evil ball in a box, like, buried in the ground. <laughs> yeah, if you're trying like, to, like, stay clear of corruption, don't go to the witch's hut! Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <sighs> Man, you know, so it's... I don't know. I, I I feel maybe a little bit less weird about it because this is only one of the many ways in which Susan is kind of a victim of these different people who are trying to take advantage of her. You know, like this. It's it's a little bit like the what is it the the, the from the Simpsons the Three Stooges theory of disease. Mister Burns ha- has so many illnesses that not like not no single one of them can kill him. It's like the Three Stooges trying to get through a door at the same time. Like enough <laughs> bad stuff is happening to Susan <laughs> that I think I'm I'm inured to a little bit of the of the explicitness that is happening here, specifically because <clears throat> like. It, it it is it is played like he is very specifically like i don't think there's any prurient interest that stephen king is trying to is trying to invoke here i don't think that he's trying to say like yeah this is this is hot like gentlemen start your engines i, I maybe i might be wrong autumn you sound like you were gonna say oh, something no, I, sorry i i think uh, kind of touching on what both of you have already said i think that the whole point of this scene uh because it's so unlike a lot of what we see in the rest of the series is just to show that everything is gross and corrupt. Everything in this town is poison. But Roland and Susan's love is just a very clean, good, wholesome thing. That 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 is a very good point because the moment they meet, Susan is distracted. She feels washed clean of it, right? And she's even able to take the knowledge that Rhea has given her and able to use it to basically she's horny because of her interaction with Roll, and then she decides to masturbate to go to sleep man i'm not this much of a prude i swear that i'm not but sometimes when you're quantifying it it's it's hard especially when you're talking about young characters like this ah but yes you're right roland and susan are very um they are the good thing also you know cuthbert and elaine and and something else that you you kind of touched on Cole is um th- this is very much like most of this book is susan being trapped by forces that are outside of her control and i mean this is our introduction to that and through through this like her having to go through this experience with no choice we we see that and then all of the things that she's thinking and especially the the walk of shame that we're going to get to here in a minute when she's kind of going through all of her options and realizing exactly what she's done and and this is a very very ex- just absolute expression of that, and uh, I don't think you're a prude at all. Like I don't, and I, like I think we, 
I, I think it's important to talk about this stuff, like kind of honestly. Like, I definitely don't think Stephen King was writing this in like with one hand, if you know what I'm saying. Like, I don't right. think that was happening. But it's 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 just weird and creepy, and and like, uh, it 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 makes me feel for Susan in a way that I'm not sure what like. The fact that she had basically no control over her life is just ultimately expressed by by this one scene, and it's going to carry her throughout the entire book. And there's not a whole lot of stuff he could have done to do that without getting a little weird. Um, so at the same time, while I think it's it fits the story well, I also think yeah. it's just creepy in general. So I don't like I think those two <laughs> things can exist at the same time, and, and, oh. and that's that's an okay place to be. Yeah, and also it's it, like it, it is a perfectly reasonable goal in this book of horror fantasy. You know, to to mm-hmm. evoke like, you know, like sex is used for horror all the time. You know, it makes perfect sense, and it really, if 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 I'm squeamish, that is that that is working exactly as intended. Yep. Yeah. So anyway, the examination done. Um, Rhea provides a slip of paper, um, a very valuable commodity that she pulls from a notebook marked "Sitgo." Let's put a pin in that because that's going to come back later. The note reads simply honest, O-N-N-E-S-T, and also bears her mark, which Rhea says cannot be copied. Um, I don't think. Is, is is tracing paper even rarer than? <laughs> Regular paper? Yeah. <laughs> I, have a, uh, I have a sad thing to tell Rhea when she's going to see that this is on like millions of Kindles around the world. Just copied all, all to hell and back. So. But it's all pixelated, you see? It's not an actual like perfect uh, yeah, copy. It's not the real it. thing. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Man, it's, um, it's a real shame what Kindles do. Like they're just the, the amount of compression that that shit goes through. It's very, uh, it's not good. I read mostly in um, night mode because I don't. Just with the the black background and the and the white text yeah, and uh, anything 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 like this, they don't ever invert. So it's just a giant block of white with the whatever mark that they're doing and around. It's like so much of a just a shitty JPEG on the page. And I'm like, okay, cool, thanks. Do I look like I know what a JPEG is? <laughs> it says Mister Amazon. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> so uh, that's one of the results. Um, there are three results of this. Maria also tells um, also tells Susan, "Okay, you can't lose your virginity. You have to tell you have to tell the mayor that he cannot uh, hit that until the demon moon rises at the very end of Reap." This gets into a little bit of like the seasonal kind of weird stuff. Consider Reap to be Halloween, you know, the very end of fall and the beginning of winter. In in this. Um, right now they're at the kissing moon, which is like the height of summer. So she has three months in order to like, as Rhea puts it, focus her energies and her efforts in order to make sure she has a son. (laughs) But also it is a three month stay of execution. Um, additionally, um, the other kind of result of this, because of the many offenses that Susan has heaped upon Rhea, uh, that cannot go unanswered. Rhea decides to pull her own little reloading trick, her own gunslinger hypnosis, uh, putting Susan under and whispering a command to her uh, that ultimately means that Susan will perform some action after her virginity is taken. Presumably by Mayor Thorin. And, and the fact that this crone can, you know, she, she whips out this coin as if from nowhere and it starts fluttering around and, uh, even though her hands are all gnarled and, and, and 
you know, swollen or whatever. Like it just, it adds to the mystique that this crone has that she can still pull off little magic tricks like this and weird hypnosis stuff. And I, I like the fact that this kind of stuff is not limited to gunslingers. Like it, it's a trick that Roland has used in the past to like do good stuff, but obviously here we're, we're not doing anything even approximating good. So I, I like the fact that this is just a trick. Yeah. And it's up to the person who uses it. One of the cool things about this book is that we find out that a lot of the tricks that we see Roland doing, and even some of the aspects about what it is to be a gunslinger itself, um, you know, like <laughs> what that means, it's not exclusive to Roland. It's not exclusive to people who trained under, you know, the line of Eld. No, it's 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 kind of out there in the world when there are just more people here, when there are people who are concerned with things besides pissing on their corn so it will grow you know life for your crop right life for your crop <laughs> oh so i think we i think we navigated that with a with a certain amount of aplomb <laughs> that discomfort uh <laughs> let's talk about the walk of shame as autumn put it but uh in reality this is this is a fateful meeting this is a chapter called a meeting on the road um, because a disgusted, you know, Susan is walking home, disgusted about what happened, disgusted by, you know, the thoughts of what happened with the mayor, etc. And as she is kind of in her in her own head, well, she's snuck up upon by one Will Will Dearborn, <laughs> Will Dearborn. Sorry, his fake name just kind of trips up on my tongue. Will Dearborn. Yeah, um, just to save you an angry tweet later, I was the one that said um, walk of shame. So um, I don't uh, put my bad jokes in Autumn's mouth. So she has oh, her own bad jokes uh, that she can deal with. Uh, okay, okay. Sorry. I... <laughs> both, no worries. No worries at all. Both of your um, last names are Greer. It's easy to get confused. It, I mean, we're basically the same person. Just ask Brian Wade. It was it was, it was really bad. Um, oh, no. We, hey, hey, um, hey, I'm uh, the honest one. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I'm not, I'm not I, here I like... to get in between your beef with Brian, okay? <laughs> my beef with, with brian knows no bounds it's everywhere and in, in all things at all times yeah mine too guy guy, guy guy did me dirty you know vis-a-vis star yeah, wars publicly dirty too <laughs> continue i'm sorry i didn't mean to trip you up <laughs> no that's okay uh i i was just the the idea of her leaving um being so preoccupied and um this this realization coming down on her that um you know, all these things that Rhea said that, you know, he's he's not necessarily interested in a son. Um, you know, he's that Thorin is not interested in a son. He's just more interested in her. And she realizes, you know, the way that he looks at her and the way like she realizes how vulnerable she's going to be in this position. And she realizes how how much her aunt sold her out um, specifically by, by like causing her with the I say causing. I, I read this book for like a day and all of a sudden I'm starting to say I everywhere. It's ridiculous how, <laughs> what, how well this vernacular gets into your brain. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> how much her um yep how much her uh aunt just kind of brainwashed her with the idea of a of a of a baby and that right. was going to be what the most important thing is um it's it's no wonder that she didn't hear this this dude sneak up on her right she's so preoccupied with yeah. um what's going on yeah well i mean like susan is innocent you know she she's innocent she's got like <laughs> you know being the daughter of a person who primarily did like horse husbandry her conception of this arrangement was that like oh well they just they do that until it takes and then it's done she didn't realize that it would be 
kind of for life that it wouldn't end after after that particular uh clause of the contract was 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 settled right uh we should also uh make mm-hmm. note uh of how often this book uses the term horse flesh like it's a thing <laughs> autumn you want to you want to speak to some horse flesh you're the horse expert in the room <laughs> I, um, nobody says that unless you're an old time 1800s person. So it's an actual term from like way back when? It is an actual term, but it's fallen out of flavor, flavor, nice favor, uh, (laughs) as people don't tend to pedal horses in the same way that they used to. Right, right. So is it because horses are less of a commodity now and they're more of like a, like a status piece or? Exactly. It's that buggy whip thing. Um, They're just sold in different ways for different purposes. Now it's not quite so much of a guy. Exactly. Like you said, a commodity. Yeah. yeah. You're not buying, you're not buying horses specifically to like pull your plow for your farm. Uh, See, here's where I am revealing, like, even though I grew up in kind of the country, I'm still a city boy. (laughs) Like, like plow pulling, that was like mules, right? That was never a horse. Oh, I'm all wrong. No, I think you can pretty much you can plow plow with whatever whatever you want. If I learned one thing from the Oregon Trail, it's that oxen can do anything. <laughs> if, I, if I learned one thing from Book Five of the series, a person can do it too. Um, <laughs> I was gonna I wanted I was gonna make a root joke, but I, you got there before I did. Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> so, I just anybody who's read read the series would would call us out for not for for not hitting that shot. Uh, but yeah, mm-hmm. horse flesh is said all over the place, and it is. It, it it always comes across as a little bit creepy because I think the word flesh is pretty creepy. But again, I feel like this is just a catalog of my hangups at this point. I don't know. <laughs> so, <laughs> getting creepy with Cole on the Radio Free Midworld podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um. So Will Deer- Dearborn comes up. This this is Roland. You know, like, and it's kind of notable because this chapter doesn't tell us that it's Roland. Like, it never really says. It alludes to the fact that he's from the Inner Baronies. In fact, Susan is pretty smitten with him because of his manner of speech. Like, oh my gosh, he's from the Inner Baronies. It's like somebody walked out of a storybook and came to her little backwater, you know, um, village, right? Um, <laughs> he's alluded to, like, he rides with everything kind of, like, strapped down, all the buckles and belts and stuff so that he doesn't uh, make a noise. Like, basically saying, like, gunslinger, gunslinger, gunslinger. This is a gunslinger, everybody. Um, but it's never straight up called out. Will Dearborn, I think, is more confident and more talkative than any version of Roland DeShane we've ever seen. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like, this is one of the first times we see Roland um, be charming, I think. You know, we, we, we had a, a glimpse of this in uh, book three when he meets the uh, the village. It's definitely not the village people. I forget uh, what they were called Yeah, now. the village people. Uh, the people of River Crossing, as, as led by Aunt Talitha. The people of yeah. River Crossing. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the side project by the lead singer of the village people. Um, it, you, we saw a little bit of that, but here he's actually being like uh, 30, which is something that we've never really seen at all. Like the the, the bow that he does to, to Susan that kind of... Like she, it just makes her laugh, and he like it makes him laugh at the same time when she laughs. Like it's just, it's very, it's a very meat cute situation, and <laughs> I, I adore all of this. I wish, I wish we had he, like sixty seven chapters of this. Yeah, so we didn't he, have to do he, all the bad stuff. He even had that bad pickup line about you know Hambry's far from purgatory. You know, I'd like to come here to meet all the pretty girls type of pickup line. Like, I, there has to be like a. 
a whole book of um, Gilead pickup lines, right? Like, <laughs> is that a gun in your bedroll? Are you happy to see me? Type of thing. <laughs> let's 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 make a popkin. But I'm 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 the bread, and also the the, the mattress is the other piece of bread. You're in between us. You <laughs> see, it's it's like a po- it's like a popkin. Uh, so let, let's go over to my diagram here. <laughs> I uh I came to count the horse flesh, but now I'm here to pound your flesh. Oh God! <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> Ooh. You, gotta, I, I, you gotta go big or go back to Gilead, man. <laughs> it's a numbers game at that point. Um, I I was I was gonna say, um, are your lips wizard glass? Because I want to taste the rainbow. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! I love Susan's reaction to his very clumsy line too, because like she very stone facedly says. Oh, you're gonna have to work on that one some more, aren't you? <laughs> like Susan is ice cold. Not like ice cold in general, but like when she wants to like shoot him down. Like it's part of the back and forth. There's such a lightness to this. It's great. It really is. There, that moment where uh, they're walking along and he just straight up stumbles and almost falls down and like looks embarrassed at it. And it's like, oh, I'm sorry, my lady. And he's yeah. and she's like, don't worry about it. Dudes have been tripping around me since I grew breast. I'm like, this is no big deal. This yeah. happens all the time. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's very cute. Yeah. It's, um, it, it, it is light in a way that does not follow, but, um, you know, we've established Roland as a character, you know, we've got familiar with how serious and kind of literal and some, in some ways even dull, Roland as a child was, um, or not not as a child, Roland two weeks ago was in The Gunslinger. Um, and, you know, we can see how out of character he is here and kind of understand what he is, uh, you know, kind of the profundity of the, of the effect that Susan has on him, right? I don't know who came up with their cover story, but it is the most plausible story I, I could conceive of. I, I wasn't almost believing it. I'm like, those bad boys running those horses at night. We should we should we should talk about that because, you know, she's obviously intrigued. You don't see somebody from the from the inner arc this often. Uh, Roland's cover story is that he uh, by which I mean, Will Dearborn um, and his two friends. Um, oh, gosh, like Richard. And, oh, man, I should have made a note of this. I'm very sorry. Um, Have been sent here uh, because they were helling. They were, um, you know, getting into trouble. They were drinking. Susan even, you know, um, guesses that maybe they were getting involved with some women they shouldn't have been involved with. Um, And rather than, you know, be exiled, they were committed to something that wasn't quite exile. They were sent to an outer burg. Um, you know, this faraway place uh, on a make work assignment, which is, you know, per Will Dearborn's kind of account to count everything like, yeah, we're just here to count because there is this conflict that is happening between the affiliation, you know, the forces of Gilead and kind of the establishment and this upstart, this bandit who has become a general who is speaking of democracy and, you know, rabble rabble rousing um, this John Farson, the good man. Um, and so <laughs> basically should the affiliation need anything, they will need to know how many horses are here. Right. And that is what, uh, that is what the cover is. And, and what a great cover this is. It, like Autumn said, like, this is just the perfect way to kind of just, you know, very subtly ins- insinuate themselves into this community. Mm-hmm. Like They can't hide the fact that they're from 
the, you know, the, 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 the inner circle, right? They can't hide the fact that they're from Gilead, that they're from New Canaan and those other kind of, uh, baronies that are described. Um, so they have to kind of like explain why that, why they might be on the outs, a, and also why, if anything bad should happen to them, um, bad things will happen to whoever did the bad deed, you know? So they are simultaneously like protected and pitied in a way. Uh, Colette, did, I just did, Arthur Heath. It was the it was the other guy you were looking for. Arthur Cuthbert's Heath. fake name. Yeah, Arthur Heath is <clears> very good. <laughs> and then Richard Richard Stockwell, or am I thinking of Dean Stockwell? Hmm. Uh, Richard Stockworth. Richard place. Stockworth. Okay, cool. So <laughs> they might as well have named him Richard Counting Things, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Richard Minister of Inventory. <laughs> <laughs> Did you guys happen to notice that 19 of the Sitco pumps were still working? Oh, absolutely. That is a highlight on my Kindle. <laughs> I uh, I am very curious. I meant to, when I when I read that today, as I was kind of skimming past this to, to get caught up, um, I, I wanted to get to find my original book and see if that was a, a modified thing. I don't think that they've released a new version of this, but with the Kindle versions, you just you have no idea what they can easily patch in. So yeah, I'm they'll... curious if that's in the actual book itself, like the original text. They'll update stuff. If anybody out there has has the original, and I'm I, I'm sure you do, Jeremy and Autumn, mm-hmm. um, uh, tweet me or put it in the Slack so I so I can know. That seems either like a coincidence or like King understanding the importance that the 19 would have before going like overboard with it. I just got finished with the uh, fifth book because uh, I was reading. I just couldn't stop myself from reading this stupid series. I finally quit at five because I'm like, it's going to be years before we get there. I've got to stop <laughs> reading this. Um, but like the the level of nineteenness goes goes way way up, and I didn't really feel like that came into account until the fifth book. And I'd, I'd be very surprised if that wasn't like some sort of edit. But I'm I'm willing, definitely willing to be wrong. It just it just stuck out to me like a sore thumb after reading the fifth book. Yeah, the, like the, the, this is prior to the rewrites that he did on on, on the first one. Mm-hmm. Autumn, as our scholar of nineteen, you're very good at spotting these things. Um have you have you seen any other nineteenness in this book on the way? Uh I would I have not I didn't want to go. Like, I haven't made notes throughout the rest of the book. Um, I will as we go on through the season. But this is this is the first one that's cropped up for me certainly in this book. Okay, understood. <clears throat> um, but that's important because they pass by. You know, Sitco. We saw the Sitco notebook that uh, that Rhea had. Sitco is the name that uh, the people of Hambry in this barony of Magus have um, <laughs> have given uh, this oil field. Uh, it's a place where all these oil derricks and uh, pumps and towers continue to labor, you know, 600 years after they were last used, right? Um, and much like all the other import- all the other places that are kind of pointed out on their journey into Hambry itself, uh, Sitko is going to be very important. Uh, we also learn, uh, you know, a little bit of detail. Like Susan says, like, "Hey, do you have like a lot of use for oil-driven machines? You know, do you have the, the buildings where they do the alchemy?" Like, oh no, it's it's a refinery. We just call it chemistry. It's fine. Oh, how antiquated! I love that reversal of what's antiquated <laughs> and what's not. Like, mm-hmm. she finds it fascinating that Roland says yes instead of I. Like he's some kind of courtly knight. <laughs> um, stuff like that. Uh, some of the other places we find out about, so the drop is kind of the long, let's say meadow or savanna, uh, kind of the, the, the sloping prairie that goes from the town itself down to the 
coastline of the Clean Sea. Then we also have Eyebolt Canyon, which is this uh, this kind of box canyon that happens to house a thinny. We'll remember thinnies from the previous episode as these little sores in the fabric of reality. And when the wind is right, uh, it keeps everybody up and turns the cow's milk sour because everybody just kind of freaked out by this horrible warbling noise. I'm a I'm a bad podcast guest and did not have time to catch up with the previous episode. I'm assuming that you guys went through some thinny stuff pretty significantly and like kind of de- described it in detail. Uh yes, yes we did. Um just because it, cool, it, cool. it's it's such a prominent feature in the in in the kind of the previous section, the this the the, the mm-hmm. setup for this. Uh I will take this moment to re- re- reiterate my love for thinnies. <laughs> you know, I was I was just about to say if if you live next to a thinny like this, why don't you move? It turns your cow's milk sour. But apparently, coal of Hambry um, is attached to that land. I'm I'm like Rhea. She loves the sound of the thinny. I I think a thinny would be very unsettling because they describe it as having a hunger of its own, and they say, well, it's it's not going to outgrow the canyon in our, in our lifetimes, but it is slowly growing. It's a pretty unsettling probably thing. Probably saves you. It probably saves you money on like mowing your lawn and stuff. I'm sure grass doesn't grow well around it. No, no, no. And also, uh, clocks run backward. No, that that <laughs> and, tent, that doesn't. And, happen. and and also, it eats animals. Can we can we talk about that? <laughs> yeah, it's got tentacles that reach out and just yoink them away. <laughs> <laughs> like sheep that wander in there don't ever come back and i'm like okay <laughs> all right <laughs> cool um so it's like a ritual once a year they, they they burn green wood at the mouth of this canyon in order to choke it with uh with smoke so they can go through the winter you know with the dry clear air uh without hearing this constant terrible sound um also pretty cool like i i, I didn't notice this detail in some of the previous goes around and it's why i'm very happy to like look at this with a series wide kind of view uh the thinny has always been there for susan but it's relatively recent uh popped up during susan's dad's lifetime like there was an earthquake and then just all of a sudden in this canyon there was this horrible thing that started growing a little bit year after year so like the town had already popped up and was well established by the time this you know kind of became a factor in their geography I love Roland's shrewd question too, where he asked her when he's asking her about all these things. He the very last thing I think he asks her is, "Is it getting bigger?" And just like Roland, just kind of automatically like intuiting what these things are and knowing how they work, and like you could just kind of you can almost feel things working in his head of like, "Yeah, we're we're definitely going to need to you know count that and use that later." <laughs> definitely. Yes, one one thinny, one one thinny. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to come up later, but I, I I love that line too much not to bring it up in response to that. <laughs> so that's the lay of the land. All of these are going to be pretty important, specifically Sitgo and Eyebolt Canyon. Um, all of this is happening as kind of a backdrop to this kind of frustrating struggle between Roland and Susan about whether or not, like just kind of negotiating their terms of travel. Roland doesn't want to be separate from her. He wants to escort her into town, but like, what will be proper? Should I walk? Should we, should we both dismount and walk? Should you ride on my horse while I follow? Like, do you need to cover up your legs while this happens? Like, come the fuck. Just fuck God. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, this seems it just incredibly exhausting. <laughs> like, yeah. It's just like, how do you talk to this person that you've never met before? Like, not actually have a conversation with them. Although they do have the conversation, but all of this impropriety stuff is it's it feels like it takes forever. Yeah, and it's it's again like I just I keep saying cute about this, and it is like they both are reveling in this kind of back and forth that they're having of like what level of access to each other are they going to give them? Like it's you know halfway into their conversation before they get to agree to be on a first name basis. Yeah. And that's like, that's impressive. Yeah. Well, also will is exceedingly polite. Like, you know, Susan's like, Oh gosh, every man that I've ever been around or every boy rather at this point just talks my ear off asking if I have any friends, asking if I have any boyfriends and stuff. Nope. Will's just going to walk alongside and just, we're going to get into town. Like he's, he's perfectly content to just like meet her on her own terms. I don't know if that's some nice guy shit or not. It, my, my, my radar is a little bit, uh, let's say calibrated weird on it, but it seems considerate. It definitely seems considerate to me. Like he, he, it definitely seems like a very roll-in thing to do. Like if he says that he's not going to ask a bunch of questions, if you, you know, if you'd rather me not, I'll, I'll just walk in a companionable silence. And he, then he doesn't. And it's, it's a very. And I don't even think he was picking up on the fact that she was getting irritated at him for not asking questions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and it, it just feels very roll-in to me. Yeah. What, what, what was your take on it, Autumn? Well, I, I just like the idea that um, it, there's certainly no way that anyone could think that they had been intimate um, in any way because, you know, she did have an impenetrable poncho over her legs. I mean, <laughs> no, nothing gets through a poncho. Oh, no, especially not one that is sized for a man much taller than Roland is. A, a Steven-sized poncho basically made of Kevlar. I mean, you, you see some teens walking up, like, from the woods in the middle of the night, but you're like, well, I mean, there's a poncho. Right, right. They're, they're definitely not going out there and smoking weed out of an apple. It's fine. They've got a poncho. <laughs> hey, to be to be fair, she's got a get-out-of-jail-free card since she's got a piece of paper that says honest. Oh, shit. Nobody knows when it was written. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's actually a really good point. Yeah. <laughs> she might as well be on spring break at this point. <laughs> She's on rump spring Woo! up. Woo! Yeah. Uh, so, uh, of course, fate is going to have to intervene because, you know, during one of these awkward silences, what does she hear Will singing or humming? But the very song that she was singing when she was approaching Rhea, Careless Love. And we get this refrain um, that I didn't notice before, you know, starts out as this long kind of paragraph, but eventually winnows down to a single to a single statement. So I'll give you the paragraph basically saying, you know, for if it's Ka, it'll come like the wind and your plans will fall before it like, you know, a barn before the before the cyclone or something like that. Just recall she is recalling or hearing the voice of her dad. You know, and she is dismissive. She does not really believe in the influence of Ka. She is not ready to jump at a shadow and call it Ka, uh, which is something King really should have uh, heeded when he wrote, uh, let's say, the last five books of this series. Um, instead, uh, no, she just has this gnawing at her. And over the course of the book, it is her recognizing that like something is moving them into this position. And eventually it comes down to just describing the force that she feels as Ka like the wind. For it is Ka, it will come like the wind. Ka like the wind. She is drawn. This is fated. Is, is Careless Love an actual song? I don't believe that it is. Because I'm... 
I Googled it on YouTube because I was curious if anybody had done like that Tolkien thing and just made a song out of the lyrics in the book. And there's all sorts of versions called Careless Love. And I'm trying to find if see if the if the lyrics match or not, because there's definitely like apparently a standard that's been covered by everybody called Careless Love. I don't know why I've never thought to Google this before, because I know Stephen King loves to use actual songs. So. Yeah. I've looked it up hmm. in the past. I think um, hmm. none of these lyrics that I see are pulling up uh, what I recognize from okay, the book. Cool. Yeah. So this just, might just sing it over tainted love. <laughs> oh, tainted. Uh, I was I was doing doing the song. It was it was still oh tainted. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> anyway, we know the affiliation is preparing for war, and this is going to be very important in the coming the coming little sections here. Um. So Susan has two requests of Will. She asks him like, hey. You're probably going to be invited to the mayor's mansion uh, for a party later. What I need you to do um, is to pretend to have never met me. Okay. Uh, if you meet me again, let it be for the first time is what she asked. She also says, you need to watch out for these for these three guys. They've got tattoos on their hands. Uh, and they're called the Big Coffin Hunters. You know, they are security forces above and beyond the sheriff immediately. Stuff is not adding up. So the, those are the two requests, and here's the one in position. As they as they part, Susan, you know, again, directed by Ka, apparently, decides, hey, we're going to smooch a little bit. Just steals one kiss and says, hey, that's for thanks. And that one kiss is going to bloom, well, you know, we talked about Romeo and Juliet before. Yeah, this is this is a really nice moment, and um, I think it almost right after it, like he, Roland just kind of dissolves, and like all of this like kind of cool and collected persona that he had, just like he like he looks at the at the reins of the horse, is like, what do I even do with these anymore? <laughs> and she immediately thinks like, I'm 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 definitely glad that I did that. And um, as a as as the the peak moment in this little meet cute. I think it's it's extremely charming. And uh, 17, 18 year old Jeremy was already in love with Susan at this point. Like, oh my God, she's just the most, she's the best. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Autumn. <laughs> <laughs> I love her too. What can I say? Yeah. I just, <laughs> they say like, oh yes, he, uh, she, she gave him a kiss and it was not sisterly. Yeah. No, it's it's it, it it's good. I feel I feel happy for him, but this also introduces or reveals an aspect of Roland's character if, you know, him deciding to take the test uh to become a gunslinger at an early age didn't reveal it. Uh Roland is obsessive as fuck. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. He's, that's that's his whole very, that's his whole thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> he's he's very honorable until he's not. You know what I'm saying? Like he's He's got this whole like ethos, this whole code of ethics, until he's like, nah, she's not married yet. <laughs> well, you know, he's also he's also been broken by the events of this book by this point. <laughs> yeah, but by, by, yeah, by the time, oh man, it's uh, it's no good. He he has run through the ringer, but also like <laughs> before we've even been introduced properly to Cuthbert in this in the in this uh, kind of iteration, uh, or 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 Alan at this point. Um, he, uh, you know, he already has his, his eyes set to a different prize 
than their kind of group cohesion or what they are here for. It's um, it's Roland's single-mindedness, I think. And this is, you know, we, we, we're seeing a, a very young and innocent version of what we've seen with Roland and what he's going to grow up to be. And it's the Roland that, you know, let Jake die in the very first book in his quest for the tower. And it's, you know, survived the unfathomable desert in his quest for the tower and, you know, picked himself up with half of his uh, hand eaten away and carried a junkie and a crazy person across a, you know, several worlds in his quest for the tower. And it's right now, like the tower hasn't really been talked about. We're going to get to that in a minute, but like now and throughout this book, it's a single mindedness to be with Susan that is going to kind of dominate him until it doesn't. And it's, it's, Stephen King's doing a really wonderful job of, of creating young Roland right now, I think like, and, and having that match up to the Roland that we have been with for God, what, what is, what is the time span of the first three books? It's like 20 years, right? Like, so conceivably you've been reading about this, this dude for 20 years and to have the young version match up so well, I think is, is an achievement for Stephen King. Yeah. We, I mean, we've alluded to the very end, but this, you know, we might as well summarize at this point, you know, after the first kiss, you know, the, everything has been set into motion this book kind of is the process of Roland being filled with this love for Susan, right? Consumed entirely. Everything else is moved out of the way. And then quite literally that is burned and that vacuum has to be filled with something else. And the character that we see, you know, has been filled with the tower. Whereas before it was Susan, you know, and, 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 and this shows that process in, in just a very sympathetic way that puts the role we've seen in the first three books in a very different light. Yeah. It's very good. I love this book so goddamn much. (laughs) 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 You you know, talking about uh, looking at, I guess it's, well, it's hard to say when we're in the middle of this book, but current Roland and past Roland, um, past Roland being the one in this book, he's so much more tolerant of uh, Cuthbert or Cuthbert than he is of Eddie. Do you think that that's because he loses him um, and maybe he, you know, doesn't want to love Eddie because he's been hurt so badly by such a similar type of person? Uh, he, He just seems to be so much more tolerant of goofs in this book. Yeah, uh, I I think so. <laughs> I think that is that, that that is definitely the case. The, the 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 amount to which he is reminded of his original quartet, you know, by the new one, I think causes him a great a great deal of pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and there it might it, it might also be that he has forgotten what a benefit uh, a, a Cuthbert can have in his life by that point. You know, many decades, possibly millennia on. You know, somewhere from ten to a thousand years beyond that. Um, you know, it, it it could be one or the other, but why not both? Uh, there's a line somewhere in here where Roland's flashing back to the conversation that he has with his his father, Stephen, and I think Stephen even says, "Like, don't bring that laughing jackass with you the the one the the barking dog with you." Yeah. <laughs> the the. I guess the Deshanes do not like goofs. And I mean, nope. you know, you have Roland's mom with these two serious guys. Maybe she was just hanging out with Martin because he was always laughing. He's got a sense of humor. Yeah. Like, look at him. He's at a yeah. funeral. He's doing vaults over the corpse. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> just want to have a little fun. <laughs> 
Yeah. You got to really wonder like what uh, Stephen DeShane's idea of like a good time was, right? Because really the only thing that we know about him is that he would sit down during the dancing at the at the at the festival or whatever. Um, uh, so I, I think Stephen. Sh- <laughs> Go ahead. He probably just wanted to whittle something and then pay his taxes. Yeah, I, I, I think the Stephen DeShane's idea of a party is moving solemnly from one place to another. <laughs> so, oh, man. We, we ought to talk about these other characters. We ought to talk about this because we haven't seen Cuthbert in a while, and Alan hasn't really been in the picture at all. Um, so in the chapter long after Moonset, we learn that Will is, and it, it, it's Roland. You know, like it's 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 kind of introduced here. We're also introduced to Cuthbert, uh, who has set up his Rook's skull as a uh, as a prank, uh, making Roland like draw his gun <laughs> and almost shoot this thing away. Um, I love this Rook's skull, this lookout that Cuthbert puts on the uh, on the horn of his saddle. Is that the thing? Is that the yep pommel? Maybe yeah, the maybe he puts it up there, but you know. <laughs> Good. Oh no, I was just going to say it can be both. If it's an English style saddle that has a pommel, um, and then uh, the Western style. Oh my usually God! Have a horn. Dial it down, horse flesh lady. Jesus. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm happy to know. I'm, I'm happy to know why. In my head, I understand that both of those things are right because they are. I, I, I appreciate the etymology. It's fine. <laughs> so. Uh, yeah. Um, no, so, so, so we, we just need to read a book that has a lot of PS4 facts in it, right? So that you guys can pipe up. <laughs> yeah. The, the x86 architecture in that. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Significant difference from the cell architecture mm, of the previous generation. For sure. Yeah. Uh, it, it definitely has, yeah. it bodes well for the, uh, for the archivability of these games. I think cell is, mm-hmm. is exactly. kind of a weirdo. Yeah. Ro- Roland picked up his PlayStation three, the cheapest Blu-ray player in the marketplace. <laughs> 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 oh so much like us uh cuthbert is a joker you know um he yes. he has this rook skull that he carries around as his good luck charm um and he talks to it the you know the lookout is his uh is is his cipher when he is afraid to uh, admit something that will compromise them oh it was it was the lookout that did this it was the lookout that fucked up not me um and cuthbert's great he is a jokester, and he is intensely loyal, but also not afraid to call Roland out on his shit. It's a good friend. Yeah, that's what you need, especially somebody like Roland. Yeah, R- Roland needs somebody to to kind of cut the the seriousness in him, and Cuthbert definitely does that. Or Cuthbert, as he very specifically will describe himself later in the book. Uh, oh, yeah. we'll, we'll, and this whole lookout thing, it it serves to like give everybody a focus that and make people think that he's weird, but not for the reason that he's actually weird. So in a way I think it's extremely clever. Everyone's so focused on like the weird Joker with the, with the rook on his saddle that they never even consider that he could be someone he's not, who could be somebody who he's wait, how does this work again? Who he's not. Right. Right. Like, Oh, he's so eccentric. There couldn't be something below that, but there definitely is. It's a very, it's, it's a very candy move. Um, and he's just like, he's incredibly well-spoken, I think. And I don't mean that by, you know, like, yes, he, he, he's a fast talker. Like, I'm not talking about his character. Like he, Stephen King has written his dialogue and his manner and his rhythm and the interactions in such a way that it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm like along. He, he speeds and lightens everything up because he does go back and forth in and out and in and out. Um, you know, we've talked about it in the movies already. Uh, we're going to talk about it 
more later on, but like Cuthbert is definitely the Richard Tozier without the uh, without the voices. I say Richard to- Tozier. Huh. I say Richie. Richie. <laughs> it's always Richie, not Richard. Yeah. <laughs> Thank God he doesn't have the voices. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, Cuthbert's great. We should also talk about Alan um, because, or Elaine. I, I, I never know how to pronounce that word. I know uh, Elaine Johannes, the musician, is uh, it's pronounced Elaine. Um, but um, he's asleep at this point, but we meet him later. Kind of the stocky dude. Uh, kind of shy, very inward turning, but very intuitive. And among them, he's like the Esper. He's the one who's uh, he's got the touch, the shine, just uh, just just a little bit psychic. And he is the voice of like quiet practicality among them. Yeah, the mediator. Yes, very much so. And so, like that's that's what we have. We have this kind of three man gang. Um, do we have anything more to say about this original Kotab? Because I feel like we've kind of been leading up to this. Like, I've been heaping a ton of praise on this particular triumvirate uh, for a long time. And so have you guys. Any any, any final things for, before we move on with the incident of the book? No. No? I just, I've, I just remember getting to this point. And um, again, there's the, there's the initial shock of, oh, this is a totally a prequel. Okay. And then four or five chapters in realizing, okay, this is going to be like the story of what happened to these people that were, that you've kind of heard Roland talk about and mm-hmm. meeting them for the first time was, was really, really fun. And it, the relationship that King writes with these three is very much like the relationship that a lot of his, um, and a lot of his books are like groups of kids, like working together against something. And this feels a little bit more mature than something like the it book. Uh-huh. Um, but it feels really, really great. <laughs> like I just, these three like are, are friends and, the things that happen to them at the end of the book will like I feel genuine emotion about. So yes. I don't want to spoil anything. I just like it, <laughs> it, it they it really works, this content does. Yeah. So when they reunite, um Roland gives a little bit of a summary, or at least the narration does, in lieu of Roland, saying that, you know, in this kind of massive game of castles, um, which I always read as chess. Uh, because everything has to have a different name. Um, in this massive game of chess between the affiliation, which is Gilead and kind of the old way, and the good man, you know, Farson and his new way, they're in this kind of end stage where both armies have come have come around uh, behind their barricades and are moving in for the kill on each other. Uh, Farson and his forces are coming out of the northwest. Uh, and have already taken the southwest as well. Hambry in the southeast should pretty much be safe. It's like a backwater. This shouldn't be, you know, any kind of uh, front at all, which is why they were sent here. But we're going to find out why that isn't particularly true at this point. Um, regardless, you know, Roland's in talking with Stephen, with his dad, uh, you know, between when <laughs> Stephen yanked him out of that whorehouse and when he was sent on his way. <laughs> Um, finds out that Stephen, like, yeah, the the good man is a bit of a uh, just you know, it's a, he's he's an irritant. The real game here is for the tower. Stephen is more worried about the tower than for Farson, and this is the first kind of inkling, the first uh, indication that the tower is the bigger game than what we're seeing here. And this is again the seed that is going to be planted um, as the conspiracy is laid out. Yep, and how and how like great is this tiny little seed like seeing roland not actually i mean he cares but he's not on the quest yet is is 
is something that I think is, is really special to be able to see. Yeah. He's not he's not exactly a fanatic at this point in time. He he's more concerned with his mother than he is the tower. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Like that that's just more in the forefront of his mind, you know? Yeah. Like all of this is still fallout from him discovering Gabriella and Martin. Yeah. Um alongside this, as you know, Roland and his cotet are reuniting, Susan has gone back to Cordelia her aunt with um, aunt. I never say aunt, her aunt um, with the honest note. And also, you know, the, the, the word that like this deal cannot be consummated until basically Halloween for three months. And of course, Cordelia being the schemer that she is, is very irritated that she has. To I want to back you up, Cole. Uh, if anybody deserves me to call it aunt, it's Cordelia. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know what it is. There, there's a definite <laughs> aunt vibe to her. <laughs> Yeah, 100%, I agree. <laughs> yeah, she, the, 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 there's like a, a, a clinging patricianness to her uh, that, mm-hmm. uh, that that really definitely, I think, demand, <laughs> demands an aunt. <laughs> See, here, <laughs> I'm just going to start stretching out all these syllables. <laughs> Come to the South Pole. We're going to corrupt you. We're, we're going to start adding all of the syllables you need into your vowels. <laughs> we can do it. <laughs> I think... I think there's something worse about Cordelia since she's actually family. Like if she had just been a stepmother, I mean, yeah, we're, we're used to stepmothers being evil. You know, they wouldn't have a blood relationship, Uh, but since they're actually blood related, Cordelia sucks. I mean, she's just horrible to Susan. Oh, she's terrible. And she, she, she is, I mean, she ultimately, ultimately leads to Susan's downfall, but like, from the from the very beginning to Susan's whole concept as a character, all the way through to the end, she is a constant force for just darkness and chaos in Susan's life, for her own selfish means. You know, it sucks. And also, Cordelia is like in with Eldred, and that's no good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let's shift the scene over to the Traveler's Rest underneath this two-headed deer trophy. Uh, the romp is what they call it with its dead eyes. And again, two heads because it's a mutie. Um, man, the Traveler's Rest is like the prototypical um, just saloon from a Western. Like they talk about just, yep, we threw it. <laughs> we don't just throw it down the sawdust to soak up the vomit. We throw it down to soak up the blood. <laughs> What a great tagline. <laughs> Come for the vomit, stay for the blood. The idea of uh, mounting a two-headed uh, whatever onto the, the, the wall of, of this place is like so um, just ridiculous and silly. Like it seems exactly <laughs> what people in this town would do. Yep, because nothing is right. And when you say two-headed it's, whatever, it is a two it, it is a deer. So it's it's with four e's instead okay. of two instead of two, uh, because because mm-hmm. it has it's tw- twice as much. Of course, yeah, because yeah. it has two faces, and two heads. <laughs> Continue. Sorry, that that was literally my point. Yeah, I just wanted to say that. Like, it's just it looks it just in my mind's eye. Like you see this place, and then you look up, and it's like up on the wall, and you're like, "What in the fuck? Where, where, where am I?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Eldred is one of these big coffin hunters. We haven't really met them since the very beginning of this, of uh, this flashback. Um, he's this older guy, you know, older than the hills, basically. Got this long hair. He has these watery eyes and this very, like, quavering voice and a very pronounced limp is what he has. 
uh, and he's kind of the leader of the security force that the mayor has been forced to hire by his uh, by his chancellor, right? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and he uh, kind of knows that there are these new people coming in, and he kind of predicts uh, a little bit of what's happening, that there is some heat from the affiliation. Um, he tells his kind of underlings, or his other big coffin hunters, so funny that they call themselves that, um, Roy DePape and Clay Reynolds, that, hey, um, we can't have them figure out what we're doing at Sitco. So while I'm over here at this party, I need you guys to go and cover up our oil tankers with pine boughs. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they, they, they go through this process, and I can't help but think uh, it just comes out the most ridiculous, like, you just obviously an oil tanker covered in pine needles <laughs> <laughs> thing in the world. It doesn't stop anything. <laughs> like... The, the the boys don't go after Sitko for a while, but that's because they know it's important to John Farson and they don't want to give up the game too easily. So like the <laughs> DePape and Reynolds, their night of just torture being covered by sap, little full, a lot of sap, um, is <laughs> thank you, Autumn. Um it ends up just being completely for naught. Good. I it, I think it's interesting that the Eldred Jonas is worried about it, but everybody else is kind of already assuming that the boys are just a, a pack of dumbasses. Yeah. Like, everybody is underestimating them, but the, but also, like, they don't trust them. You know, they do not appreciate the affiliation, even sending these little pissants into their affairs. Like, we're going to find out in this next chapter, but, like, nobody wants these kids around. And they're going to work to either intimidate them or foil them at every at, at every step. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I guess further, like, showing you how much Eldred Jonas um, is not a great guy. He's got a crush on Cor- on Cordelia. Yeah, she's, she's a person of character who I definitely want to kind of hitch my wagon to. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He's uh he's so creepily into her too. Basically, like oh I know I know exactly what those prim and proper ladies are, and I'm like, <laughs> and I'm just like man, what you are you are a piece of work, Jonas. Yeah, you're drawing some conclusions, aren't you, Jonas? <laughs> I, I think I think he I think he said the the skinnier the better, and he was really hoping for a big nose. Like it was just what? That's a match made in heaven. You're, you, you know what? You're a villain. I'm a villain. <laughs> exactly. let's get together and we, do we what villains a... do <laughs> <laughs> let's just pick the most stereotypical like like villainess that i can find <laughs> right i've already got this mustache here you wear this fake one and we can both <laughs> twirl them together it'll be a date we'll bond over it exactly we're just going to date to the train tracks where we can we can tie someone there yeah yeah <laughs> so um that's all funny and there is a certain kind of humorous aspect to, to you know to elder because he is this long-haired you know old guy basically revolver ocelot um except um he's got this limp and Stephen king goes out of his way to set up exactly like what's what's going on here why these guys seem to be heightened above the rest especially especially jonas eldred has this limp jonas has this limp because well, Court, you remember our drill sergeant Court from back in Gilead. Court's dad 
broke Eldred's leg during um, his own quest, during, you know, Jonas's own quest to become a, a gunslinger, his test, rather, um, and sent him west. Jonas is a failed Gilead gunslinger, and he went west, and he found a gun, as all of the failed ones do, and took up cause against them. Uh-oh. Um... I know we've I know we've talked about this in the past with um, how wasteful of a system this is <laughs> that you fail a test and then like years of training are just thrown away so that you can and then you literally like make an enemy as soon as they they fail this test like it's uh-huh. it's kind of a ridiculous premise if you if you really think about it but is I always had the impression up until this that uh, being a gunslinger was almost uh, akin to kind of a, a royal vibe like you you came from a family of gunslingers and. You know, they only allowed uh, men of a certain station or from a certain station of family to, you know, go through these, this, what has to be extremely expensive and time consuming training. Um, but seeing that, like, you can just send a bunch of dudes out west if they, if they fail their, you know, their man test or, or what have you, like, are they just accepting all comers and, like, maybe the, the, ba- the, the shitty ones just wash out way, way early, like, as kids and don't get to the point where they take their man test? Like, I'm, I, I, I kind of like the idea of just like I, I, basically just give me like Harry Potter's school of Hogwarts like except for all of these gunslingers. That's what I really want. Yeah, send, like <laughs> send Jonas to Slytherin. You know, like make Court the Sorting Hat. Exactly the Courting Hat. <laughs> Mm-hmm. The Cordy <laughs> hat. Like, yes, that's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, it definitely seems wasteful. It also seems very politically unwise because up to this point, um, the gunslingers and, if, and even beyond this, the gunslingers are considered to be like knights. You know, they 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 are mentioned in the same breath, and knights are always nobility. Uh, not always. There are any number of exceptions you can find. Generally, nobility. Um, and come from a family that has like put them into this. Like this is the service that these, you know, that these kids are born into. Like even, even Roland, by the time he has passed his test, he's not really, you know, he's a gunslinger, but kind, kind of just technically he's a squire. He still has his training guns, you know? Yeah. He's three quarters of a gunslinger, basically. It seems unwise to leave these broken tools kind of around like mad dogs there's there's that quote that's been floating around lately about if you don't initiate your young men into the tribe they'll burn down the village Uh i mean it just seems like they're they're just setting them up i mean no no wonder these guys are helping out the good man yeah and i don't know if uh de pape and reynolds are also failed gunslingers but they definitely have gunslinger skills as we're gonna see later they're uh, they're they're not good dudes. So yeah, there's a lot about Gilead's system. They're definitely, and a, definitely not good dudes. Yeah, <laughs> the, 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 there's a lot about Gilead's system and a lot about the affiliation that just kind of seems unwise or imprudent. Um, and that's kind of most apparent here right now. But it's it's very strange to see the villain and kind of the larger scope of a book be set out against the idea of democracy. You know, that you have mm-hmm. the good side of things being presented as this, like, rightful aristocracy that is only in the right because they happen to be aligned with the right side of the universe <laughs> for for basically yeah. no, like, no other reason. Like, no, no, no aspect of the merit of their rule are they good. It's just because Gan says that they are. 
because a, a lady of the, a lady in a lake somewhere like came up and handed Arthur L a, 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 a shining gun and said, "You're the one." So now he gets to be king. Like well, that's the she, she that's gave the him a sword the and then he melted it down and turned it into the gun. Yeah, even better. Yeah, that's <laughs> I want to see that training montage. Um, yeah, it, it it definitely it definitely seems weird. I, I like it. Like it's got a romanticism that I think I really responded to when I was reading these for the first time through. Right, like this was yeah. like this was like oh wow, this is. You know, if you fail, you, you basically die, but you don't actually die. You just go on to become their their enemy. Uh, like Autumn said, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, I don't get the vibe that uh, the two the two other coffin hunters actually went through that kind of training. I feel like they just came up rough and they, they've learned to survive and they've probably stolen tricks or learned tricks from other people. Um, yeah, I don't I don't really get the same kind of cold calculating um, aspect that from. Because in a lot of ways, Jonas is very similar to Roland in that aspect, right? Like there, yeah. there's a lot of parallels in these in these in these two quartets that are aligning themselves against one another. Yeah, and I just I just don't see that with uh, Roy and other guy whose name I've already forgotten. Roy, Roy and Clay. Clay, thank yeah. you. Yeah, Roy is definitely the more memorable one because he has glasses. Yes. Yeah. Um, so we should move through these next two a little bit quickly. Mostly I just want to get through the party because it's a little bit boring. I want to get to the standoff because it's cool. Um, <laughs> but, um, in the chapter, in the chapter, welcome to town, the boys meet the sheriff who kind of big times them saying, Hey, isn't it impressive that I have ice? <laughs> like, Oh, you didn't expect us to have ice out here in this backwater. Did you? Well, guess what? We have a Honda generator. I don't know what Honda is. It's a nonsense word, but we got it. Honda, Sitgo, man, there's all kinds of stuff just, just dropping all around this world, huh? Yep. <laughs> you, you, you can't have a hambry party without ice. Nope. Oh, <laughs> man. The, 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 they've got something to prove is what they have. Um, so the boys don't trust the sheriff, nor do they trust pretty much anyone they meet. You know, they understand that, like, everybody thinks that they're, you know, rubes. Not that they're rubes. That's the wrong way to phrase this. (laughs) Everybody in this town thinks that they're too young to have any sense and that they can have the the wool pulled over their eyes. Um, And they know that the people that they're talking with are more than rubes, that there is, you know, kind of something going on, that they're being kept at arm's length. Yeah, Um, they're greenhorns. Yes. Uh, the townspeople are even going so far as to have them watched. Like the sheriff drops a uh, drops a little hint saying, yeah, yeah, you guys are out by such and such. Like, you know, do some very bad OPSEC. You don't let the person you're watching know that you're watching them by telling them that you know where they were. But he's not he's not that smart. As we're going to see. Yeah, and the sh- I like that the sheriff just immediately underestimates these boys too. Like he just <laughs> almost completely accepts them at face value, and it's like, oh, these 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 dudes don't know nothing. Yep. <laughs> and uh, just immediately, I I want I want I, I like when you're reading for the, this for the first time, you just want this dudes come up. It's like the five seconds after you meet him. <laughs> yep. Well, and I especially want it later. Um. <laughs> so they go to the party, you know, at Seaside Manor. Uh, we we meet some more people. We get our first experience with Marathorin, not just through Susan's eyes, and and he's everything that she promised he would be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We also get his wife, who is, I think, the only other person in this town that Roland trusts besides Susan. She's a nice lady. Yeah. Beleaguered. Like, she, she married a dipshit. <laughs> 
she did marry a dipshit. Like, and that's not necessarily on her. I think. No, no. People can turn into dipshits over time. Yeah, no. But she like like she she ends up being this kind of like understated force for like not sensibility. Like, she doesn't affect anything. So it's I, I shouldn't call her a force, but like it she she is she is a sympathetic figure. That's what I should say. She'll she'll have a moment to shine, uh, but throughout most of the book, she's a, a figure to be pitied. True and. You know, when, when Roland sees her um, later, well, I'll, I'll haul it off. We're always there anyway. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, then we also see somebody who's going to be very important. Um, somebody that Roland calls old Dr. Death, who I guess is this mythological figure in their, in their mind. Uh, like, you know, Grim Reaper kind of guy. This very thin dude, Kimba Reimer. Uh, I, I believe is how you say it. He is the chancellor, and he also introduces himself as the minister of inventory, uh, as though <laughs> the people he's meeting, as though these kids are complete fools and don't understand that he just made up that title on the spot because he heard what they were here to do. Uh, Kimba, he's a, he's a puppet master. He's pulling the strings. Yeah, I, I have a really hard time with Kimba Reimer. Uh, like, even having read this book relatively recently, I... Like, I know he bosses some people around, but like it's really hard for me to remember anything that he does in this book. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why. I know he's important, but like I, I, all of my attention is usually focused on what Jonas is doing yeah. uh, and not necessarily what Kimba is doing. Yeah. K- Kimba controls the purse spring, the, 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 the purse strings and kind of understands mm-hmm. Hambry's roles and Farson's plans. Is, is the idea yeah. Kimba's the one that Marathorin looks to to make sure he hasn't fucked things up while Thorin you know is this figurehead who is really just chasing chasing tail it's very satisfying how the boys kind of trick these guys too I, I love it when I mean they're playing their roles so well when they are like oh sorry we're we're only drinking soft punch because you know we're basically doing and everyone's just patting him on the back like, oh, you're such good boys. I mean, they, they're really grifting these guys well. <laughs> Playing them like a fiddle. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so those are some of the important people that we see. Uh, of course, Jonas is rolling around here. Uh, Roland sees Susan next to Thorin, and uh, 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 he doesn't really understand what's going on. And his his feelings are, you know, still there. Even though he's pretending not to have met her, he understands what they shared that 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 night. Um, and uh, you know, of course, Cordelia pulls Susan aside. Like, why are you looking at him like that? Cordelia understands exactly what's going on. It's actually a little spooky how much Cordelia uh, has her eyes on the prize vis a vis selling her niece. I imagine for Cordelia, this is everything that she's had coming to her, right? Like her, her living in the shadow of her uh, brother, who was a member of the community and, you know, had a, what she probably considers a job that's beneath her, like had a working man's job as mm-hmm. opposed to an aristocrat job. And now that she has this opportunity to get wealth and to, you know, she's she's willing to do whatever she has to to try to get into that upper crust level. And um Man, I just think she's such a shitbag when she does this stuff. Yeah. She's just so bad. Just man, they, she's written so well to, for me to hate her completely. <laughs> it's and, and it's funny we have that personal connection. She's not that much better than a lot of these other people that we that we find out about. 
you know, like when the mm-hmm. when the boys are going around, I, I feel we're calling them the boys, but like I don't, I, the Katat is a different group of people at this point. Um, when they're going around and just kind of like hobnobbing and just trying to mingle and get a lay of the land, everybody's lying to them. Like no, <laughs> nobody trusts these ostensible forces for good in this they're they're like it it is a massive like kind of shell game being played with exactly how many horses they have in this town so cordelia is like a specific kind of monster but nobody is innocent in this like and i love just this idea of like okay well it's like this tiny little town by the sea no this is like a tiny little town by the sea in like a basically lovecraft kind of sense (laughs) that there are no technical (laughs) monsters but like they're going to chase everybody out who is getting up in their shit i think the thinny might count as a technical monster if you really want to stretch your definition all right i forgot about the thinny (laughs) see that's the problem that's what happens people go to hammer they forget about the thinny they don't watch their step (laughs) 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 oh man um, things are drawn to a head when Roland is talking to Hash Renfrew, which is an amazing name. I couldn't have made that name up if I if I tried. Um, <laughs> he's one of the one of the ranchers. It's and... it's, Go ahead. it's so bodacious. Like and I don't use that word. I don't use that term lightly. But it's just so like brash and bodacious. Like, <laughs> Hash Renfrew. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's perfect. It's perfect. Uh, is what it is. Go ahead. Autumn and I play a lot of uh, Diablo 3, as you well know, because we've talked about it quite a bit. And yeah. um, you can, if when you start a new character, of course, you can like name your character if you want to. But Blizzard has helpfully provided like an auto generation name system. And Hash Renfrew definitely seems like something Blizzard would put in as one of their like automatic names for a crusader or something. It right? does. <laughs> it really does. <laughs> I love random name generators. I, I love randomly naming my chickens in Stardew Valley. Yes, my chicken's name is Fro. I have my um, I, I have a monk named Cord with a K, and I didn't name him that. Blizzard did, so thank you, Blizzard, <laughs> Thanks, for Blizzard. naming my dude Cord. This podcast, it's the first sponsor we've had. Blizzard, thank you, Blizzard, Blizzard. for giving me Cord. <laughs> We're accepting no other payment aside from Cord. <laughs> uh, but Hash, you know, breaks it to Roland. Roland asks, like, "Hey, so why is that beautiful girl? What's her name?" Uh, Cezanne? C- 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 yeah, Cezanne. Why is she? Uh, well, no, she's. There's a particular arrangement that Susan has with, with, with the. She, she's as Gilly, and all of the stuff that we've mentioned before kind of crashes on Roland immediately, and he goes from being smitten temporarily. He goes from being smitten to being really angry and kind, kind of a shitty way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's nagging her. <laughs> yeah. Now this is much he, worse. He really is. This is much worse in the comic. Like if you if you read the Gunslinger Born, like Roland is a complete piece of shit to his mom and to Susan in a way that like goes even beyond what we see here. Like, oh my gosh, these are two women who are forced into the situation for reasons beyond their control. And Roland is still completely merciless to them. In the book, like he he has a temporary misunderstanding, thinking that Susan has entered into this arrangement of, you know, again, of her own free will um, and has kind of deceived him willingly, not understanding how how complicated this is. That doesn't forgive what he says to her, though, when they're dancing. No. Not at all. Yeah. Um, he, he, he I think this is a way overreaction, like 
she told him that her affairs were what was the word she used it wasn't tenuous but it was um she oh, she remember. set her relationship status to it's complicated <laughs> yes yeah absolutely um and, and like this is just I, I guess it's because he's so hurt like this is the first time that he or not the first time <clears throat> excuse me but this is one of the first times he's ever had his feelings hurt by somebody yeah um that he just reacts this badly but man it's it's not a good look at all no no and things things are ultimately set right but i mean we should we should say with the you know the the megaton bomb that he drops on her is so they're in this crazy little like square dance basically thing and susan and, and roland are matched up and when they're close to each other she says you know i need to thank you for your discretion and propriety talking about like hey thanks for not making a big deal of this you know thanks for basically following the arrangement and he says oh i can be discreet if i want to uh as for propriety I'm surprised you know the meaning of the word. Ouch. Yeah, let's get some ointment for that uh, uh, just lash. Fucking burn (laughs) that he dropped. Yeah, that genteel burn. Yeah, it's it's, it's an incredibly genteel burn, but like, holy shit. Yeah, it's like Jane Austen just burned you. Like, oh, you, you, you have no propriety, <laughs> madam, is what he said to her. And like, oh, that means everything, especially when they're arguing, arguing about how much of her skirt her poncho should cover. <laughs> <laughs> you sullied Su- my poncho, ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> Susan is very taken aback by this, too. Like, she is, she's like, what the Christ? What? What? Huh? What, what's happening? I believe she feels like she's been slapped across the face. I think that was the the, the words that she uses when she's thinking about this. I might be wrong. Though. I can't yeah, quite yeah. There are a couple times where it feels like uh, she's been slapped across the face, but I think this in particular is is the one where it's like, oh, this is this is a huge betrayal. Like maybe she feels like she communicated to him and like, hey, just like let's let's reset after this. Like that things were going to be complicated when they got there. Like you know, she she didn't expect it to be to be this bad, but like no, he he yanked the he yanked the rug out from under her by 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 saying this terrible <laughs> thing. You know, she's she's right to feel like she does, and they both of them leave this feeling completely hurt. You know, they're still fixated on each other, but like this is this is not great. No. Yeah, I'm sad. I want these two. You know, these two kids are going to be all right. That's a weird definition of all right. Spoilers. I I just, I said it earlier. I want him to be like Mickey and Mallory, natural born killers. Just, you know, leaving a camera to tell the tale, rolling around Gilead. Yeah. Just fucking shit up. Just do it. Come on. Yeah. Oh. We should talk about the fallout from this because as the party breaks apart, everybody decides to go their own ways. Oftentimes, to the traveler's rest, the high society trickles down to the bar with the blood uh, and the two-headed deer. In this whole chapter, Shimi, uh, it's one scene, like it doesn't particularly sprawl. Um, however, it, it is described in a lot of detail, which we can kind of get through in a short amount of time here because we're introduced in this to a character who ends up being pretty important to the series as a whole. Uh, his name's Shimi Ruiz. He's the son of the... Uh, of one of the bartenders at the uh, Traveler's Rest. And he's kind of the, uh, you know, the janitor around this place. He's got, you know, 
men- mental handicap or developmental disabilities, something like that, as King characters often do. But, you know, they describe him as being somebody who, you know, can basically be kind to anybody when nobody else really can afford that, uh, you know, generally among everybody else. And his, part of his job is to go around and take all of the drinks that have not been finished and pour them into a jug that is marked camel piss. So imagine all the dregs of the beer and the and the graph uh, and uh, the, the moonshine all poured together, sold uh, for three pennies a shot to the daring and impetuous. Autumn and I have oh. a, uh, an, an old friend that uh, in, in his college days would take uh, cigarettes that were put out and he would squeeze the tobacco out of them and compile all of that tobacco into one new monster cigarette. He would smoke and, butts. Called, and he called that he he called that reburns. And uh I, I just both of these I, I can't tell which one is grosser. <laughs> the fact that they have all this leftover alcohol into the camel piss bucket or <sighs> gathering used tobacco into one horrible tasting, I'm sure, cigarette. The, uh, the fact that they sell it like it's not even like he's like okay i'm gonna get this together because i'm poor and i want to drink it they're reselling it <laughs> oh no you're right that's definitely worse if they're reselling it okay i'll take yeah. it back yeah <laughs> like, this, this is this is an institutional part of the bar like this isn't somebody who's going around from table to table like drinking the leftover bits of marg you know <laughs> it's li- it's literally drinking well right yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> Ooh. so like you know but Chimi, you know he's he's living his life and you know he's he's got he's, he's got something going for him except he accidentally spills all of this onto i believe it's roy de pape yes it's de pape why did why did it have to be roy <sighs> it's no good because roy says hey guess what <laughs> You ruined my boots, so I'm going to have to have you lick them clean. Which, Roy, sorry, that's not going to make the situation better. You're just being a dick. Yeah. Um, why, why couldn't he have just spilled it on Cuthbert? <laughs> it would have definitely cut out the middleman. Uh, yeah. but, but Cuthbert's there, and Cuthbert being the upright guy that he is, saying, you can't do this to that. You can't do Just, like, have him shine your shoe with his cloth. He's got it right there. Don't be a, Don't be a dick. And so Cuthbert, not being able to pull out his guns, says, I've got this slingshot. Guess what? Quick <laughs> quick as can be, I'm going to fire this at you and well, we're just gonna knock off the fingernail of your of your of your middle finger on your left hand. No big deal. It's fine. And this sets up a standoff where uh uh <laughs> Pape has pulled a gun on uh, on Cuthbert, uh, who has the the, the slingshot drawn on Pape. Reynolds comes up behind Cuthbert with a uh, with, with, with a gun. Elaine comes up behind Reynolds with a knife, uh, holding it to his neck. Jonas comes up behind Elaine uh, with, uh, with, with with his own gun, and out from the shadows, our own star-crossed lover Roland walks by the post office, which is adorned with the uh, the Guardians of the Beam. Uh, specifically hiding behind the bear, foreshadowing, foreshadowing, and sneaking up and uh, putting his own knife in the back of uh, of, of, of uh, Jonas and checkmate. They're, they're good at what they do. I, I just love this whole like one by one kind of domino effect. And uh, when, when Roland gets the drop on Jonas is just one of the best feelings in the world. And you, you can tell it just irritates the shit out of that dude. Yeah. <laughs> it's. It... I mean, can you... 
No, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, can you can you even have a Western <laughs> if you don't have a moment like this? Is it even a Western if like two people don't get to draw on each other and then talk it out? No, no. It might as well be Sleepless in Seattle at that point. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's fantastic. Yeah, this, this this whole thing is is, is super tense and, and great, and I I it's just a like it's fun to visualize in your mind like all of the different angles that this is coming at, and then um it, it's also fun to kind of visualize like all of the people that are in the bar like looking at this and going like what Christ what <laughs> what what is happening where is the exit I need to get out of here immediately. <laughs> well, it's fantastic because you know like. King even goes in the narration to describe like if everybody who claimed to have seen that was in there, it would have to be a room the size of Hamburg itself. Like saying, mm-hmm. even after the world has moved on, even after everything, like the legend of this night of the spilling of the camel piss, you know, lived large in this region because of how momentous it was. And there might be a little bit, a, a little bit of that that is like the uh, the great and epic rock fight. Like who knows? But I, just, I I love how improbable all of this is. It's like uh, it's it's like Anchorman when all of those different news teams come out and like okay, like one after the other after yes. the other after the other. Like okay, well, are all of us here? Okay, well let's set let's set some ground rules. <laughs> but no ground rules can be set because all of them are accounted for, and the sheriff has to uh, has to break them apart. Shimi is forgotten in all of this as the clash between the uh, the furtive gunslingers and the ex-gunslingers uh, comes to a head. The sheriff comes and says, like, hey, going to arrest all you guys, and I could kick both of you out. Uh, however, if you guys just shake up, we can pretend this didn't happen, which is a terrible thing because we're left with two conclusions. A, the kids know that the big coffin hunters want to kill them. And the big coffin hunters are only not killing them because they don't want to rock the boat and bring the hammer down on their plans for this mysterious figure we're going to find out about later, General Latigo. I'm sorry. That was a whirlwind. I think I summarized way too much of that. (laughs) This is so good. It's like a 30-page chapter, but it goes by and like a... Because it's all action. But like not all action. It's all tension. This makes me want Stephen King to write more of this and yeah. less 16 year olds getting molested by witches. <laughs> <Just Yeah. saying>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Autumn. Stephen King can write as many weird Westerns as he wants. I'm, I'll buy them all. Yep. It's great. It's such a good Western. I love Westerns. This is the, the this is a, like a, a collision of so many things that I enjoy. Um, and that's where we're going to leave it. Uh, this episode ended up being a little bit longer than I intended it to. So thank you, Autumn and Jeremy, for sticking around. Uh, it's been a lot of fun to talk about. We're going to finish the uh, Susan chapter uh, in two weeks when you listen to this. Final thoughts about the first part of this, about uh, all of the setup uh, from the flashback up to like establishing that, yes, this is going to come to a head between Roland and Jonas Autumn. You're completely right that this was a a perfect setup. I mean, all the chess pieces are on the table. We've got all the characters. We've got all of their motivations. We've got, I I mean, we we were kind of teasing about it being an action-packed 30 pages, and then the first page is taking maybe a little longer than um, (laughs) I think any of us wanted them to. Uh, Just circumstantial, like, you know, with what was going on. But um, like we always say, I just want to keep going just because... Uh, shit's about to pop off. Yeah. I mean, and we, and we do, <laughs> and it does. <laughs> yeah, we, every, everything's popping off us, the shit, 
<laughs> uh, Jeremy. <laughs> Uh, I am not popping off. No, no. <laughs> um, I, 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 I think we covered it pretty well. Like, uh, and and Autumn summed this up as well. Like, just it, the idea of meeting these characters for the first time. Um, the idea of being in this this old West world that you kind of had an idea that Roland was in at some point, but you like actually being in it is is something totally different. And then going through this motion like developing like all of this myriad cast of characters and all of this intrigue between them and like the things the places this book goes is is so interesting to me sometimes because it, Stephen King for once it, Stephen King's known for writing enormous books um and for things for a lot of things to happen into them and, and but in this book in particular you really feel that space and you really feel like it kind of needs that space to be able to, to breathe and to let things develop and it's for as kind of quick as we get into stuff right here with this, the, the sections that we covered today. Uh, it's it's going to slow down and you're going to be able to kind of just bask in these characters. And it really works for me. So I'm excited to get into it. Yeah. Do you guys want to uh, go ahead and record the next podcast while we're, while we're here? <laughs> no, I really need to use the restroom. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll make my... <laughs> I'll, I'll make my thoughts concise, um, w- which are prequels are tough because it feels like they remove a lot of the stakes. We know Roland comes through this and we know that Susan doesn't. And, you know, like, who knows? We know that Cuthbert dies laughing, but that could happen anytime. Um, <laughs> that's literally the only detail we have about his end. The trick to making them work is introducing characters that you care about so that you have stakes. We know in broad strokes how this is going to shake out, but I really care what happens to a lot of the people that we've seen. And I want to make sure they, you know, if they're going to end, they suffer at the very least dignified ends. If I care about them or that they get their comeuppance. I think King does a very good job at making a case for his prequel um, at the beginning of this and setting up at the very least three incredibly strong villains. So even if we feel like he hasn't lived up to the sense of creating stakes we want some bad things to happen to bad people and that's what we've gotten in this verse we have Rhea, we have jonas and we have uh we have cordelia mm-hmm. yeah into it this is good this is a very good book so um again thank you for sticking around for this kind of longer episode uh autumn where can people find you um, you can find me online on Twitter at, oh, I just choked on my own, I guess, Twitter handle <laughs> um, <laughs> at Mrs. Greer. That's M-I-S-S-U-S Greer. Um, you can also find me on the Radio Free Midworld channel in Slack. Yeah. Uh, Jeremy. I'm at JG Greer. Uh, you can find all of the various podcasts I do, I'll uh, I'll give a special shout out to the podcast I do on the Duckfeed Network with uh, your podcast co-host Gary. Uh, we do a X Men podcast called Days of Future Cast. We um today we have a uh, today we, we 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 solidified some Christmas plans. So uh, <laughs> I, I will say that if you've if you've never watched X Men the animated series, uh, stick with us right around Christmas time. We're going to have a special Christmas episode uh, based on the Christmas episode of X-Men the Animated Series and you can ask Autumn I was I was watching this today and just like cackling with laughter it's the most bonkers thing I've ever seen in my goddamn life and I love it so much I'm so excited uh, so yeah stay tuned for, for all of that uh, and you can probably find a lot of that information in the Days of Future Cash channel on the Duck Feed Slack yeah uh, you can find me on Twitter at Cole Ross that is K-O-L-E-R-O-S-S 
and also on other shows on duckfeed.tv. Watch out for fireballs, abject suffering, you know that. Um, ratings and reviews are always appreciated. And if you want to follow me on Twitch, uh, just go to twitch.tv slash duckfeedtv where I stream mostly horror games, but I'm trying to branch out and do different kind of shows on that as well. We've been going. I don't want to sell you on anything more. Um, looking forward to talking about more of this book. We almost went into a whole other episode right now. Um, but to stop that, I need to say the magic words to end this. Thank you so much for listening. It's the first one. And second, long days and pleasant nights. Thank you.